This is the Fixed Plasm podcast, dissecting fiction for role-playing inspiration. And I'm Ralph. I'm going to wrap up the cyberpunk section by talking about a few other titles that I really like and recommend, but I just didn't have time to cover. So I'm going to go through each of these and rather than give a full-on synopsis, just cover the headlines and why it's interesting and why you should read it. Stand on Zanzibar. Stand on Zanzibar is John Brunner's 1969 novel about an overpopulated 2010 and the accompanying social stresses together with corporate interference with government and nations, uh, mental programming, emergence of new slang. Um, I didn't cover it because it's a chunky novel and I didn't have time, but it blew me away when I first read it and it's widely regarded as having aged really well. It does some really convincing world building through mixing the main narrative, which is called continuity, with side plots, which are tracking with close-ups, and also bits of ephemera, uh, the happening world, and general environmental world building called context. So you have four threads running through the entire novel, giving you the main plot and all of the side activities, and then bits of atmosphere on the side. There's this accompanying paranoia of, of things like sleeper agents and uh, reprehensible politics like um, uh, eugenics programs and shadowy corporations that make this you know a dystopian future. So there are these individual elements that you can pick out that are obviously, uh, they, they feel very cyberpunk. But what I really wanted to say is I think that this novel is more than the sum of its parts. What it does really, really well is the big picture. And for that reason, I'm recommending it. Transmetropolitan. Okay, so Warren Ellis' Transmetropolitan is a 60-issue comic series, which was, uh, first 12 issues were under the Helix imprint, and then the remaining issues were then under the Vertigo imprint. Um, It's one of the few titles I followed from start to finish in the 90s, and it covers the exploits of gonzo journalist Spider Jerusalem, who's been a a recluse outside the city, uh, capital C city, let's call it, for several years after what appears to have been a breakdown following his popularity getting in the way of his ability to actually do his journalistic job, getting in the way of the truth, as he puts it. But now he's run out of money and he has a contract uh, to deliver two books to somebody who I'm not sure if we ever realise who they are. And what that means is he's forced to come back to the capital C city. And this is super conurbation on the U.S. Eastern Seaboard that probably includes New York, New Jersey uh, and other surrounding areas. I'm not quite sure how big, but, you know, it's, it's supposedly enormous. So he comes back to the city to start writing again. And whilst he's writing the novels, um, in uh, to, to make a day-to-day living, he writes a column for The Word, which he calls I Hate It Here. It's the writing process and the people and situations he comes across that form most of the issue-by-issue narrative. Uh, There is a long-term plot, which is his entanglement with US politics, uh, when the new president makes it his personal mission to destroy Spider, mostly out of a, a single encounter that happens quite early on in year two. So why is it interesting for cyberpunk? Well, a lot of what makes it really, really great is the way the future city-state is presented and the, the the diversity of people, I guess. By now, we expect our humans to be highly individual and diverse in terms of ethnicity, sexual preference, presentation, religion, politics, you know, the, the post-cyberpunk trope of organisation into neo-tribal units, 
uh, with a diverse identity. And, and that's pretty well represented in this in this series. And then mashed into this world, there's a whole load of transhuman and posthuman stuff like uh, foglet communities, which are, are basically humans who've uploaded their consciousness into clouds of nanites, making them functionally immortal and, and gaseous. There's there's the matter energy transfer tech called makers, which are supplied by the mafia. Uh, and Spider Jerusalem's mafia-made maker synthesizes its own drugs so it gets high when he's out of his apartment. There's biotech and medical tech that makes uh, most disease irrelevant. So you can have an implanted anti-cancer trait or a trait that means you don't have to eat unless you're too poor to afford it. And there are prescription anti-cancer drugs that people take every day. So Spider smokes an outrageous amount and yet he's safe because he takes anti-cancer. Some people are even modifying their genes to transition to other species, including little grey aliens, and that's part of a subplot we have very early on, involving a character called Fred Christ, who has this, uh, he's partially transitioned into a grey, and he has a whole cult following, who basically are also transitioning, so he's built this little enclave. It's also a capitalist superstate, so everything has a price. Everything is insured as well. There's this big thing about certain types of insurance it's apparently illegal not to have certain types of insurance and spider jerusalem as a journalist has uh in, has journalist insurance drug use is widespread and sophisticated uh pretty much decriminalized spider himself is a connoisseur of a massive range of drugs and it's one of the things actually it seems he uses to distract himself from how much he hates it here uh one of the plot lines early on features a woman frozen in the past when she had uh, an incurable disease, who is defrosted in the future, this present day. And she's basically just cured just like that because they have they have the science to do that. But what they don't do then is any kind of psychological orientation. So when she is just pushed out onto the street after having been reconstituted into a, a new body that, that is young and, and works well, um, she has a mental breakdown because, of course, she sees greys and foglets and people with body modifications and, and the world is just too strange for her to comprehend and that's kind of a, a thing about the medical situation and it's uh, uh, you can cure anything if you've got money you can make people if you've got money uh, but if you're poor or if your contract only goes so far then you're going to be out of luck yes they'll cure your disease but then they'll just leave you at a halfway house and forget about you and some people have to choose between not having infectious diseases that actually have been cured and eating um another interesting plot line that's covered early on is um, reservations so these are segregated spaces which preserve former human cultures like like the mayans and they preserve it to the extent that they control pathogens going in and out um they as, with the result of the mind society in there has a, a life expectancy that's far shorter than you'd expect outside and they also practice human sacrifice um there are also future enclaves or reservations sorry um like the farsight community which is is kind of looking forward into the future and it, it uses experimental tech like uh, information pollen that becomes an interesting thing later on in the uh, in the whole series so what you've got is you've got this massive melting pot of people in the city and geographical boundaries that, that traditionally demarc nations are pretty much irrelevant. And this is 
This is not the first time that we've seen this kind of thing. Neil Stevenson's The Diamond Age has people organised into files or tribes, uh, so their their nation status is defined by the people they know uh, and the people that they they are part of the same tribe with. What you have here is in Transmetropolitan, you have the city, which is just like this this massive, diverse mess. And then you just have the wilderness outside the city, and you know there's something outside. You know there are other parts of the world. All the action takes place in the city. The other thing you've got is you've got this political campaign that's this overarching plot from year two through to the end. And that's layered all over the top. And although the techniques that are used, the technology that's used are new and they are science fictional, the lies, the deception, the appealing to extremists and appealing to the lowest common denominator, that's all very tangible. You know, it's, it's the sort of thing that, quite frankly, we're seeing today. Uh, one last point is also really funny. Some of it's quite, you know, black humour and some of it's really scatological. So Spider's got a signature weapon, which is which is a bowel disruptor with uh, the settings are loose, watery, prolapse and shat into unconsciousness, I think. I think it's great. If you fancy reading it, that the sort of the first 12 issues are probably that they have a lot of uh, individual self-contained ideas and they're really, really great as it goes on from... Uh, issue 13 through to 60 then you actually get the arc plot um, which is also still really good and there are lots of individual episodes in there uh, which are absolutely terrific Um, the relationships that that spider has the side characters are all fantastic so can't recommend it enough wild palms all right next up i want to talk about wild palms which is this slightly surreal messy near future mini series by bruce wagner and I think it attracted attention, if I remember, because Oliver Stone is the exec- is named as the executive producer or an executive producer. Um, it aired in 1993, and there's there's like this early 90s vibe that I get from it. It all feels a bit Twin Peaks, um, a bit Lynchian. That could be though me mixing it up with Lost Highway because Robert Logia um, is the bad guy in both. Wild Palms and Lost Highway. Uh, Wild Palms also has you know other big names in it. It's got uh, James Belushi, uh, Kim Cattrall, Angie Dickinson, and others. But as I said, it's messy because there's this really clear tonal shift about halfway through, like they suddenly run out of money or they made a decision to change the plot or cut a whole load of stuff out. A bit like the sort of thing that happened in um, Coppola's Dracula, I think. Um, still. There are a couple of things that I really, really like about it. Um, first of all, there's this aesthetic, which is clearly a, a sort of near future, but otherwise not too distant world. It's very recognisable. Uh, in most cases, the action is upper middle class. So lots of people with, with fancy cars, big houses and, and fine suits. There are these distinctive fashions like uh, three-piece suits with upturned collars that everyone wears so there are kind of these things that say this is the world that you know but it's just like one step to the left or it's, it's just a little way in the future when things have moved on but it's all very plausible uh, it's kind of feels like you know another time another place if you've seen the movie streets of fire uh, it's a bit like that it feels like earth but it's not it's it's somewhere slightly out of place a sort of alternate timeline almost then the other thing you have is the political plot of the neo-fascist fathers opposed by the libertarian friends so that's a capital f fathers and capital f friends 
uh, and that's you know, really uncomfortably plausible. Uh, the main thing about this is that you know, you know it's slightly in the future because these political groups, they are incredibly overt and blatant. They'll do things like you know, beat people up in broad daylight or abduct them from restaurants when a whole load of people are eating they just come in and pick up somebody and and it's it's got sort of it's got this sort of unreal hollywood sense to where they are and i think it's pretty sure it's los angeles and i think if i remember it's a while since i watched it i think jim belushi's character is uh something to do with entertainment so there's this kind of you question if everything is actually real the other thing that kind of makes it sort of it edges into cyberpunk is virtual reality. And so this is, in this one, is an early 90s version of virtual reality. So think um, Lawnmower Man, VR headsets. And in, in this case, um, VR is accessed through what look like tinted swimming goggles with wires coming out of them uh, on, on funny headsets. But it's the sort of thing that, that, you know, it comes in through the eyes and then you are transported to another world where... You can see and feel things, and this is very early prototype disruptive technology. So, because it's emergent technology, a lot of what the plot is about is these two secret factions trying to leverage the emerging tech for their own political ends, or at least one side trying to do it, the other side trying to oppose them. You know, um, and towards the end of the plot gets a bit silly, and I think that might be because of the rushed plot or changed decisions or whatever. As as I mentioned, it's messy. Um, you know, people achieve functional immortality by being transformed into a hologram, for example. Um, and that's not too silly on its own, but there's a particularly daft scene. Um, but this is, you know, precursor cyberspace that represents unknown territory. And you don't know what it will do to the mind. So, so you, you've got these people who seized upon the opportunity. They don't know the long-term effects. No one does. You don't know how this territory is going to be shaped and exploited. Which brings me on to Vert. Okay, Vert by Jeff Noon. A couple of years ago I reread Vert as well as the sequels Pollen. Sorry, the sequel Pollen and Nymphomation, which is a prequel, and also Automated Alice. And I had the intention of covering them in an episode, and I can't remember why I didn't. Uh, out of time, I guess, having a baby. If you read the Wikipedia pages on Jeff Noon, you'll, you'll see that the, the allusions are to Orpheus in the Underworld. There's connections to um, Shakespeare's Othello uh, because Scribble's sister, who is trapped in the Underworld, or, this, or the Vert, is Desdemona. And uh, there's things later on, particularly with Pollen, there's like the, the emergence of, of Greek deities from, a sort of, from the Vert, which is a sort of virtual collective subconscious. So, big question, what was this doing in a discussion of near-future cyberpunk fiction? Uh, okay, two things. Firstly, Vert happens very much at street level, with Scribble's gang and, and the drug use, which is the, the ingesting of feathers to access the Vert. Um, the whole meta-human stuff like dog boys, psychic shadow girls, um, the dealers and the cops and the other characters who live on the fringes of criminality, you know, all, all of that stuff. It it feels gritty, it feels near future. I guess maybe noir is a better word than cyberpunk, but I, I think there's, some, there's a common DNA between noir and cyberpunk, I'd argue. Now, the second aspect is the vert itself, which is you know, this, this cyberspace that can be accessed by the feathers, which are drugs stroke programs. They're created by real people with the aim of accessing the shared unconsciousness of 
humanity. Um, and things live in this separate space, and, and critically for the plot of Vert, they can be exchanged between the real and the Vert. As a, there's actually a an exchange rate. It's called I think it's called Hobart's constant or something like that. Um, and this is basically what happens to Scribble's sister Desdemona, and she gets exchanged for the thing. So the thing is now part of um, uh, Scribble's gang, which is called the Stash Riders, I think. Uh, and Desdemona is out in the Vert somewhere, and Scribble is searching for her by immersing himself more and more in the vert. Now, what's interesting here is that the vert intrudes on the real and, and how people turn that into an economy. You've got to say that the vert is this kind of primal chaos and it's moulded by human sorcerers who make the feathers to generate effects. And more importantly, it's home to what we would view as gods. So in the past, I've said there's a, a right way and a wrong way to mix fantasy and cyberpunk. In my humble opinion, Shadowrun is the wrong way. Yeah, so, so you have magic and elves and orcs in an otherwise cyberpunk world. Well, you know, so what? Ultimately, the orcs and the elves are just another tribe of consumers. Now, if, if they were based around particular religious belief, or if they were humans transitioning into elves or orcs, or otherwise banding together as a tribe like uh, the Diamond Ages uh, Neo-Victorians, that would be interesting. But, you know, otherwise, you know, this elven nation that's just sprung up, well, okay, fine. I mean, sort of, if that's an identity that you want to explore in your game, that's fine. But humans are already diverse enough. Why, why do you need to add elves and orcs and, and stuff? And magic itself is... Magic is just another form of superpowers. I mean, it, it was quite compelling in the late 80s when I played it a little bit, but I don't really see the point. There are things that you can do to inject that kind of fantasy into cyberpunk. You can have augmented reality where people can choose to look, look however they want. You can have cyberspace where people can have avatars which can behave in a magical way. You can treat cyberspace as... I don't know, a, a, a Kabbalistic tree of life that you actually have to ascend. But just cosmetics, just because a person says they're an elf, well, you know, fine, you're an elf. It, it's it's not really the point of the game. And that's what I've always felt about Shadowrun, is that, oh, it's it's cyberpunk with elves. Well, you know, not sure I'm that bothered. But the point about Vert is that um, the people in the Vert are not like humans. They have different values. They are, I suppose, a little like the gods in Lovecraft's Dreamlands, for example. And they're accessed in a similar way, you know, if, if you think about it. The Vert defies logic. At the same time, though, it's recognisable as a dream or a god or a, a cultural motif. So it means something to the people going into that space. And then, you know, obviously Jeff Noon has a, an interest in Alice in Wonderland. He wrote Automated Alice, and there's, there's a whole load of Alice in Wonderland tie-in to, uh, to Vert. There's a bar called Slithy Toes, if I remember from my brief reading of um, the Wikipedia page. So what I'm saying is the Vert, the Vert defies logic, as I said, uh, but it has these recognisable motifs in it that mean something to humans. And gods exist within it, so it's a sort of, it's almost like a consciousness springing from nothing. And that's a really powerful thing in, in sort of the idea about cyberspace, where you can get new things growing that don't actually come from any part of organic Earth. So then the question is, who's, who's the creator there? And previously I talked about um, 
Land of Laughs, Jonathan Carroll, and of course then we've got you've got the the writer, the author of the all the characters in Galen. They are the source and they are the god. So the question is, do these gods spring from nothing, or do they spring from specific people in the real world? That's why I think Vert is actually a good fantasy, that a good near future fantasy, because what it's doing is actually fantastic. It is mythic. It is resonant. I must say, my thoughts on this have been influenced by me, me reading uh, Moorcock's Wizardry and Wild Romance. But talk about that some other time. So um, I've not read the Vert RPG, but I see that it's basically cipher system. So uh, it's a cousin to The Strange and Numenera. And it looks like the emphasis is on exploring weird new worlds in the Vert. Um, so I, I'm curious about how it's been implemented. I'm sure that there's a, a future Manchester and Dog Boys and Shadow Girls and Vert Feathers and you know gangs and cops and plenty of opportunities to explore the virtual worlds. What I don't know is how well it implements the mythic elements. Now, if you think of the Vert as a bit of a, a patchwork of magical territories with itinerant gods, a bit like Amber or Everway or Nobilis, they're, they're territories. They are spaces that you move between. What I think you'd have to do for Vert, though, is you balance the mythic exploration stuff with the cyberpunk stuff. You need to balance the myth and the magic with the down-to-earth, gritty Manchester stuff. Um, if you have too much of the former, the sort of, then, then it becomes, uh, I assume, like The Strange, uh, or Day Trippers, that's a, going back to Todd Foley's interview. Um, and uh, if you have too much of the latter then it's, it's basically just cyberpunk with lipstick. Uh, and I guess that's going to be a tricky balance to strike. Burning Chrome. Okay, finally we come to the elephant in the room, which is uh, William Gibson. So you, you might rightly ask why I haven't talked about New Romancer yet. The answer is, I don't really like it. Um, I have a big stack of books I want to read and also some I want to reread. And New Romancer is nowhere near the top. I did think about sort of flicking through it. I reread it a few years ago, but um, it doesn't do that much for me. Even though I, you know, I basically like the plot and the concepts, um, I do like, however, the the short stories collection Burning Chrome a lot better. Uh, and that has uh, Johnny Mnemonic in it and New Rose Hotel, which are pretty good bite-sized bits of cyberpunk if you want that feel. Um, the stories I like best are Hinterlands which is basically a, a Lovecraftian horror story about space exploration and alien first contact, and the Gernsberg Continuum, which is uh, kind of really important in the context of this sequence I've done, because it considers an imagined future based on an extrapolated 1930s, just in the way I'm sort of thinking about divergent cyberpunk genre fiction, which is you know, not where we are at the moment. Uh, of course, the Gernsback continuum is also interesting because it has these semiotic ghosts that they disc they, they talk about from a, a collective imagination. So we're, we're back with this, what is cyberspace and what is this thing that pervades uh, the world that causes people to hallucinate and make imaginings real? Whole collective subconsciousness again. 
There's a few other things that I'd like to just quickly mention that I haven't given that much attention to. Um, the comic Appleseed, if you like your robots and manga, uh, Matsumune, Matsumune Shirao's Appleseed has got landmates and um, it's got an interesting political situation where you've basically got a, a utopian world post-collapse where uh, the characters basically are questioning the the political you know merits and the the political mandates of a uh, utopia to interfere in other nations which is quite good and also with lots of action and cyborgs and stuff that's good fun um pat cadigan sinners is you know a, a classic and and uh, but unfortunately i never managed to read past the first few chapters uh, i'm not sure why that is i think it just circumstances got on the way it's not like i don't like it i just just hasn't managed to do that um I should mention things like uh, Bruce Sterling and William Gibson's The Difference Engine, which, of course, then edges into steampunk, uh, which I read once. I thought it was tedious. So, yeah, forget that. Um, and then you have the the, the post-cyberpunk and post-human stuff. Um, I talked about Neil Stevenson's The Diamond Age, which is uh, probably a better novel than Snow Crash, but doesn't illustrate the points that Snow Crash does. But it does have this interesting organisation of people into into tribes, files they're called, including the Neo-Victorians, and it has uh, nanotech. And there's other things going forward. I haven't read Altered Carbon, but the that that's edging into, of course, the the whole post-human, transhuman eclipse phase, people being re-sleeved, functional immortality all over again. So that's my list. Let me know if I've missed anything out that you think I should have mentioned. Probably Schizomatrix uh, for the whole Shape and Mechanist thing, Bruce Sterling, which I've not read. Blood Music, maybe, if you want to talk about, a bit about uh, Biopunk. Other than that, thank you for listening, and I'll speak to you next time. If you like this episode, please like, share and subscribe. Give us a review on iTunes, or otherwise spread the word. We're on Twitter and Facebook as well. All music on this podcast is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chriszabriskie.com.